This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. This is episode two in a short three-part series on artificial intelligence and the future of the military and defense. And our guest is none other than Michael Brown himself. Michael started off in Silicon Valley on the business side. He got his bachelor's degree at Harvard, got his MBA at Stanford, and was previously the CEO of a company called the Quantum Corporation, which as of today still has over a thousand employees. He then worked at Symantec for over 13 years, ending his tenure there as CEO. Symantec has over 15,000 employees and one of the world's leading cybersecurity firms. And from there, he has served as the director for the Defense Innovation Unit for the U.S. DOD. So this is someone with a fantastic background in business and technology, who also has a passion for homeland security and defense innovation. And Michael is someone who, in my opinion, gets it in terms of how artificial intelligence needs to be adopted in terms of how the West generally and the U.S. specifically need to level up their AI capabilities in the face of growing adversarial authoritarian powers such as China. Michael is someone whose perspectives are renowned. If you go to Google and you type in Michael Brown, China's technology transfer strategy, you'll see one of the many works of his that were influential, not just for myself, but for the defense community generally. And part of what really makes Michael stand out as someone who understands the challenges of today and how the defense world needs to modernize. We speak today about the importance of artificial intelligence in the future of defense and what the future of warfare is going to look like. And we also talk about how the United States military is leveling up their innovation efforts around artificial intelligence and how they should be doing more of that into the future. Again, for those of you interested in the international balance of power, this episode should be fascinating. Michael is someone with very rare perspective here. For those of you interested in how to change big organizations and how to properly level up and innovate inside of institutions that were constructed, you know, a hundred or more years ago, this is also a fascinating episode to understand what those efforts look like and what it takes to start turning the gears of real AI adoption and AI fluency in an ecosystem where that's really not the norm. It's a tough job. It's an awfully tough job, but it's an important one if the United States wants to be able to stay ahead of the curve and ahead of its adversaries. So whether you're in the public or the private sector, I hope this is a very helpful episode. I certainly enjoyed being able to catch up with Michael again. Michael was kind enough to connect some three years ago, and it was his very kind recommendation that got me a first small presentation at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., So grateful to him for that and for the very smart defense leaders that I met during that experience, and also glad that he was able to carve out the time to join us on the show this week. So without further ado, let's hop right in. This is Michael Brown, the director of the DIU for the U.S. DOD, here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Mike, I'm glad we're able to connect again after a quarter of a decade since our last conversation. It's kind of crazy (laughs) to say that. A lot has happened. You've written a lot of great material. We're going to be diving right into those hot topics. But for the folks who aren't aware of what the DIU is, it might be cool to have a bit of background, as well as the relevance of AI for the DOD broadly. Kind of bullet points. How do you like to bring that to the table as you meet a new audience? Yeah, Defense Innovation Unit uh, created five years ago now by uh, then-Secretary Ash Carter I was really all about creating a bridge between the tech community and the Pentagon. And I think when that started, it maybe wasn't clear how it would manifest itself. But today that's about projects. So how can we solve a DOD problem by bringing the best of what's available commercially 
to the Pentagon. So we do that by a process of letting the commercial market know what the problem is we're trying to solve. And then we down select to one or two vendors who will be prototyping that with us and then get that quickly uh, accelerated and adopted by DOD. So that's how DIU works. And I'd say it's a pretty successful model. At this point, we're about to start our 100th project. Uh, we probably made about $2 billion worth of contract value available to vendors at this point and introduced 65 first-time vendors to DOD. In terms of AI, because that's a critically important technology to society, it's going to be very important for DOD. And this is one of many technologies where the DOD is not leading the development of technology. If you go all the way back to how Silicon Valley got its name, DOD yep. was at the forefront. <laughs> we were yes. financing, we were an early adopter of semiconductor yes. technology. We're talking about you know, the late 60s, early 70s. Now we need to learn to be a fast follower because we're not developing the technology. We need to get advantage of what's being developed outside in the commercial world. So that's where AI is uh, critically important because it's going to be so important for us to be able to fuse a lot of sensor data together in the military and make quick operational decisions. And this needs to happen at a speed of relevance. It's beyond what a human is able to do. Yeah, maybe beyond what the older kind of procurement models would permit in terms of nimbleness for, for the DOD on some level as well. In your work, if, if folks, and I would advocate that the people listening in do this, I certainly don't say this about every guest, Mike, so uh, take this compliment. <laughs> you know, I'd certainly recommend folks give a good Google to some of Mike's more robust work on the future of, of AI and its relevance for the government, and as well as kind of the the importance for America to kind of stay preeminent in terms of our, our position in, in AI and innovation. Talk to us a little bit, Mike, about why now that relevance is, is so important. America, I think, is used to kind of cruising at the top and, you know, being really far ahead in tech. And hey, that's just where we are. But, you know, we're, we're, we're in a little bit of a different, maybe tense, you know, scenario in some ways. How do you explain that to people who aren't as familiar? Well, you're spot on. Uh, if we go back to Silicon Valley, where Silicon Valley got its name during that time period, 50 or 60 years ago, most of the technology development in the world was happening in this country. And a lot of the technology development was happening because of the U.S. military. In fact, if you go all the way back to 1960, one third of global R&D was U.S. military backed. Now that number is 3.6%. So a lot more happening outside the U.S., rest of the world. And a lot of technology development, most of it is happening even in the U.S. outside the Department of Defense. So this is what's changed. And in the last 10 years, China has really become a juggernaut in terms of its uh, growth. Of course, we're watching what's happening with its economy. Uh, most economists expect China will be a larger economy than the U.S. sometime in the next decade or 15 years. And that's a startling fact in and of itself. No American alive has been uh, around at a time when there's another economy that's larger than ours. And that has implications because of how China is achieving that growth through technology that China really wants to be uh, not just ahead in some of the traditional industries they've been in in the past, which might have been manufacturing-based, arbitraging low labor rates, to being really leading in what we've called in this country industries of the future, satellites, artificial intelligence, uh, semiconductors. So they really see that as a key to their economic growth. And if we think about what that implication is for the U.S. and our allies, it means they want those industries, they want those profit pools, they want the leading suppliers in those industries. Take 5G, Huawei is the tip of the iceberg. They want to see that happen across all those industries 
that we just talked about, and they want to be setting the standards uh, for those technologies. So it's not just producing products, not just having the companies that have global market share, but setting the standards and leading in the technology development. And that's a scary thought. Not only does it relates to our economic prosperity, if you think about someone else taking the lead from the US and all those critical industries, one that have a lot of high paying jobs associated with them, but also for the US military. Uh, so we don't wanna be second rate in terms of the technology that we're fielding to the military. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the way that I see it, and, and to some degree, you know, I'm I'm a pretty bipartisan guy. I'm I'm neither uh, red or blue or what. I I, yeah, I got to take situations individually. I'm not lodged with any camp, but I think no matter which camp I'm in, so long as speaking freely and associating freely and finding the information that I like, sort of those really kind of core basic uh, basic freedoms are important to me. Whatever camp I'm in by golly, the, the norms of the overall bubble of those freedoms, no matter what political camp I'm in, feel very, very important. In my, in my supposition here is that Americans more or less have been able to live in a world where you can just breathe that stuff in. You wake up in the morning, all the freedoms you want are there. And it's almost like it's in the ether. But in fact, it's not. In fact, it's, it's sort of due to, to sort of the, the culture that, that's strong enough to sort of have that, you know, uphold that ceiling and roof. I think some of the sincere tremblings and, and kind of concerns around Chinese technological predominance is that actually the cultural milieu of what is predominant would be sort of naturally led by whoever's running the show. Is is this sort of, do you see this talked about enough? Do you like to think about it in a different way? This is one of the reasons I think it's pretty important, but of course, you know, your perspective would be more informed than mine. Well, Dan, I think you're hitting a really important uh, implication, which is any technology can be used for good or for bad. And I think we in America are used to setting the standards and having a big influence on how technology is used. Now, if we look at how technology is used in uh, China today, unfortunately, the Chinese Communist Party uh, views technology and media as a source of political control. So they're all about moving the technology forward, but it's not for the same reasons we would necessarily want that move forward in the US. They see this as a way to make sure the regime stays in power, and you see that manifested in being, frankly, uh, a surveillance state. No more so than we see with the Uyghurs and the terrible loss of individual freedom that those people have. But this is also happening in China's major cities. So whether you're talking about uh, Beijing, Shanghai, yeah. or elsewhere, it's a surveillance society. They're further ahead than the U.S. is in facial recognition, as an example. And how is that used? They want to know where every citizen is at every point in time. And now there is the ability through technology to do that and understand uh, what people's conversations are. Their social media is being followed by the government to make sure that they're not saying things that are negative to government points of view. And you're right. We don't want to live in a world where that is the way technology is used. We want more freedom. We want more privacy. We want more security. I think people think, well, you know, China can do whatever they'd like. It's, it's really interesting because people get very prickly about small things. I think we've gotten very excited about fighting ourselves. It's been like a really interesting, fun sport. We're like super interested in shredding our neighbors. But like the Uyghur camps are like kind of a, not a big deal for most Americans for some really obscure reason that I to this day don't quite understand. But uh, in terms of what it means when China's farther ahead, I think there's a presumption that, hey, they can do whatever they'd like in their own space. But is the supposition on some level here, Mike, that if that moves along maybe far enough over there, then if that's part of the infrastructure of the internet, part of the new you know hardware and software that, that kind of 
you know, undergirds the commercial and business applications and the way people talk and communicate that maybe some of that monitoring what you say about the Chinese Communist Party, about mentioning whatever Tiananmen Square or something and in, in some random email in Nebraska will be flagged and, you know, punished in, in potentially some subtle or overt ways, just like they would in, in China. Is this part of the, the concern with the predominance really leaving the world where freedoms are normal? And, and sort of going to China, or, or do you paint it in a different light? No, I think you're exactly right with what the implications are. Uh, it's pretty clear that China wants to export that technology. Uh, we can see that happening with uh, Huawei and 5G technology. They would like to be the communications backbone across the world, not just in the US, but across Europe and Asia. And that's a business opportunity for them. Certainly. But it's also a way to extend their surveillance to other societies. Now, Huawei will tell you that uh, they're an independent company. Uh, the Communist Party doesn't own them. But if you take a look even at the laws that China has on its books, the Internet security law, national security law, as an example, Huawei cannot refuse the Chinese Communist Party's request to supply information about particular conversations or an entire communication backbone. They are required to provide that. So you can envision if the world is naive enough to say, okay, for economic reasons, for low cost of 5G infrastructure, we'll go ahead and go with Huawei. Uh, then you're basically making a commitment that you're okay with China being able to watch every conversation. And we see China taking very coercive economic moves if a country decides they're going to take a different political view relative to the, the Communist Party. So we see that's in Belt and Road, you know, they have uh, ownership of Piraeus, a Greek port, and then they put pressure on the Greek government to go against the EC, support whatever the Communist Party would like to see happen. So imagine a situation where our communications within the U.S., you said Nebraska, right, could be monitored and there could be some punitive action that's taken. And we see this with Chinese students in the U.S. Uh, they have to be on their guard and not not speaking their mind, which is our way of doing things, but yeah. towing the line and making sure that uh, they don't become the object of some punitive actions that the government takes because they uh, said the wrong thing. And that's what living in a surveillance society is is like. And we're very privileged not to have that in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's tough to go back. I think if, you know, in, in China, all the way from the first emperor on down, there's been a pretty good norm of uh, how that works. You know, Confucius's breeze of the emperor blows and the blades of grass will bend. It's all really nicely lined up for obedience, but it's really it's really tough to export that to nations that aren't used to, to being treated that way. And if they can they can lock Jack Ma up and do whatever they want to him, they can definitely take you out as a PhD student. I'll tell you what, there's certainly stories of that. We're going to get into the private sector here as we wrap stuff up. You guys are a real conduit into the private sector. Obviously, in terms of B2B AI, we try our damnedest to be the conduit to communicate with that space, that, that rife ecosystem that's developing here in the States. Something I think about when you mention kind of these companies being wings of, of the Chinese Communist Party, people are often unaware of how this operates. Pretty easy to Google. Huawei's a very arbitrary example, frankly. I mean, we could look at any of the big, mm -hmm. the big tech companies in, in China are, are essentially arms of, of the CCP in one capacity or another. Big consequences right. if you're not, Jack Ma being an example. How does the United States, China's got this great ability, uh, Mike, to be able to, to wield the private sector really to their ends and to have one singular, you know, we, we've gone from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, good gracious. I mean, you know, it's like we've got, we've got all kinds of wacky stuff happening in this country in terms of leadership and, and direction. 
they're able to sort of snipe a North Star of what they want to wield, where that power is going to be, you know, the predominance that they want to have in, in a given narrative, and, and just marshal the private sector in that shared direction. We're a, a quite a divided nation right now, Mike. What's it going to look like for this kind of innovative ecosystem freedom model that's really fighting a lot amongst itself to keep up with that solid toed line of the CCP? What, what do you think is going to have to happen for the West to maintain the predominance that, that you're hoping for? Well, interesting that uh, you talk about the private sector government. I think in the Chinese model, they don't really view those as different sectors. They are all elements of state power. Yeah, you're right. So you're right. We yeah. think about these as divided <laughs> yeah. elements because language, of how yeah. our society is organized. From their standpoint, these are all parts of the same It's all the first government, property. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a, it's a completely different system. Now, for us, I think uh, we already know what the formula looks like. We need to invest in ourselves. So there's been so much written and discussed about what we need to be doing relative to China. We're in a competition. We've been in competitions before. This is very different than the last great power competition we were in with the Soviet Union. Very different in terms of China's economic and technological prowess relative to the U.S. versus what we faced uh, in the Cold War. But a Cold War lesson that we can apply that we took right out of being fearful out of the launch of Sputnik was we invested in ourselves. It was a tremendous energy in the 1960s with the space race, investing in science and technology, developing more engineers, some of the technology that the Defense Department invested in, which became the internet and GPS, created untold commercial uh, prosperity yeah, through yeah, many yeah. startups and, uh, and companies that benefited from that technology. We need to take a lesson from that book, our science and technology enterprise, our national labs, the government funding for uh, federally funded R&D, that's all been in decline because we haven't realized we're in a competition of this magnitude. And it's time to revitalize that. It's time to say, yeah, we wanna be preeminent in science. Technology development is critical for us and we make the right investments both in the government side, so federally funded R&D, which has been in decline since the 1960s, as well as on the private side. We could be doing more with uh, R&D tax credits, incentives to make longer-term investments rather than being so short-term oriented. This is what we need to do in the US, invest in ourselves, take advantage of our strengths, make that commitment to technology, because as the Chinese government has seen, it's gonna be critical to economic prosperity over the next couple of decades. And this is critically important in AI. AI is a foundational technology, just like semiconductors were in the 60s and 70s, that we will find evolves to be a part of everything we do in society. So we have to make sure that the U.S. and its allies maintain leadership there, both in terms of setting the standards, the ethics that we abide by, and ensuring that we've got the uh, commercial capability, the companies that are leading in these spaces. I was in the Bay Area for you know, a number of years in, when starting this research firm. And it was great to be able to go to the headquarters of the Facebooks of the world and talk to who's running AI and the headquarters of the LinkedIn's and, you know, whoever else, uh, Oracle was out there. Baidu had a lab I got into as well, back when Andrew Ng was with them. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that it was great to see where, you know, how much really screaming edge applications of this technology were, were coming to life, facing the customer in the back end, just a lot of interesting action. But also there's certainly kind of cultural elements here around 
how people feel potentially sometimes about about defense or or just how people feel and and that those feelings about defense are really kind of political fault line kind of feelings you know there there's certain you know there's maybe a portion of america that that kind of hopes like hey you know america should be less powerful by golly you know we we got you know too much of it and we're kind of bad and a bad country or whatever the case may be and and there's there's sort of these competing narratives around where we should even stand it it sort of seems to me like when sputnik occurred there was enough of a i hate to use the term the common enemy analogy i don't think it has to be malicious but but there was at least an aligned shebang there we're pretty well aligned uh facing each other to some degree i wonder if it's going to take another i hate to say sputnik like event to sort of get the shake up of like whoa folks you know no matter what side of the divide you're on if you like praying to things or googling things and never having your legs be broken and never having your organs harvested you know it's a pretty good move to sort of keep america strong what do you think it's going to take to get that to get that narrative to stick well i think it's starting to happen i think uh you know through at the very end of the obama administration i think there was a recognition that the thoughts that we had about china's evolution probably were a bit flawed in other words uh, since china joined the wto in the 90s we thought mm, china will become a more responsible citizen on the global stage china is becoming a bigger citizen but after its own interests so whatever we thought was globally responsible is not part of their agenda they have their own views and uh, we're likely to face a competition with them so there are areas where we can still collaborate and we should climate change would be one of those uh, nuclear nonproliferation would be another but there are areas where we're clearly going to be competing economically for the technology standards and, and the companies that are going to be on the world stage. So I think that uh, it's going to be important for us to make sure that we're doing the investment, as we just talked about, uh, because you don't have to look very far to see some of the the danger signs. You talked about whether it needed to be another sputting moment. China already last year had more space launches than the U.S. did. So there are signs. Uh, there are quite a few industries where China is already leading relative to the U.S. They launched a satellite in 2016, the Missia satellite that uses quantum science to do communications. So they're already leading in a number of areas. Is All we need to do is look and pay attention to see that. And we've got to take that cue to say it's going to be important for the reasons we've already talked about to make sure we're making the right investments so we're just not asleep at the switch and get further and further behind to the point where we might not be able to catch up. Well, and I guess that brings us to our closing note here, Mike, around sort of the private sector. Obviously, you know, companies, computer vision, NLP, you name it, that, that want to be able to grow, there's obviously much more opportunity to work with the Department of Defense. And you guys are a conduit to that at the DIU, really trying to open things up to newer vendors, smaller vendors, cutting edge vendors, folks with uh, something to contribute. So that, you know, there's just a pure economic incentive there. What else, you know, if, if there's startups folks tuned in right now, Mike, there's, there's people in all kinds of enterprises, life sciences, financial services uh, around the states and, and you know, even elsewhere. There's people who, you know, want to be able to kind of help this cause in some way, shape or form. What are some other, you know, take home messages for them or things you'd want to leave people with uh, from, from this interview here? Well, number one, let's all educate ourselves to what China is doing and recognize that this is something we all need to understand and figure out on which side we want to be on this to the point you just made, doesn't matter what side of the U.S. political divide is on, you're on. It's important to play your role here so that the U.S. can still be a economically prosperous and secure uh, society. I think there's a self-interested play uh, to support DIU. If you're a small, medium or large company and uh, you have something to offer from a technology standpoint, we have 
projects that we're doing for the Department of Defense all the time. Probably are doing uh, 25 or 30 of these per year. And we announce them on our website, uh, which is www.diu.mil. And we can also uh, subscribe you to an RSS feed that lets you know about these projects. But supporting us by competing and saying you've got something to offer as a solution when we post a problem is a big help. We need to make sure that the military does have access to the best of what U.S. innovation can offer. And everything we've done at DIU is about minimizing your opportunity cost to compete in that and making sure that we can make it as easy and friendly a process as possible. Uh, we may not be all the way there, but uh, we've dramatically improved the experience for companies to do business with Department of Defense. Get involved, help support us, and do yourself a favor by getting a DOD contract. Big time. I think it's great that you folks are allowing a more permeable sort of entry there. I think it's going to be necessary in such a fast moving space. And I sincerely hope that some of the folks uh, get to reading a bit about China and sort of understanding some of the some of the importance of, of staying strong and, and staying ahead in some respects. And again, I, I wouldn't say it of everybody, but if you want to if you want to read some very uh, sharp material in that regard, uh, Google Michael A. Brown and, and uh, make sure that you, you check out some of the some of the material that's already been created. I know that's all we have for time. But thank you so much for being able to join us. I'm glad we got to catch up again. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here with you. So that's all for this episode of the AI in Business podcast. Thank you to you for listening all the way through to the end here. And a big thank you to Michael Brown for being able to join us on this episode. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. And for those of you, again, interested in the international balance of power, I hope that this was piercingly insightful. There's so much more that Michael has written. I genuinely advocate checking out his work on China's transfer strategy and any of his interviews or PDFs about how the U.S. can maintain a technology edge. I hope that the U.S. DOD has more and more folks with his level of innovation and AI fluency as we move forward. If you benefited from this episode and if you just want to support the show, we've been working hard as heck to try to get the best guests we possibly can here on the AI and Business Podcast from Silicon Valley gurus like Steve Blank last week to we've had the head of AI at Raytheon, a Fortune 100 company. We had Michael Brown on this week. If you've benefited from these episodes, again, you want to be able to support the show in some way, please do consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Pretty easy to find the AI in Business podcast on Apple Podcasts. And when you leave a five-star review, let us know what you liked. Podcast reviews are literally the main influencer of our editorial calendar. When it comes to who are we going to interview, what are we going to cover, it's really based around what people actually want. So certainly we have polls on our email list, but your thoughts in a review would really mean the world. And it would also help to support the show. So if you've benefited from it, consider dropping us a review on Apple Podcasts, what used to be called iTunes. You can simply find us at AI in Business. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed and stay tuned right here. This weekend, we've got another episode in our AI Futures series for those of you interested in the long-term impacts of AI. And next week, we have our third of this three-part series on AI in defense. We're going to be covering more unique AI use cases in defense and homeland security, things that probably don't come to mind when you think about AI and homeland security. Actually, a lot of very interesting novel use cases and applications uh, from a PhD who's been very up close with the U.S. DOD. So a lot of excitement for next week, and hopefully you'll join us for this weekend for AI Future Series. Thanks again for staying tuned, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast. <laughs>